Thanks so much. You may have a seat. It's great to see all of you here this morning. My name is Chad. I serve as one of the pastors here at LifePoint. We're grateful to have you with us as we're continuing in this series that we're calling New in the book of Revelation. A pretty exciting day with child dedication. We're going to be in Revelation 17 and 18, talking about prostitution and the beast. So that's a great alignment that we brought uh, in that. So I hope your kids are staying with you uh, for the dedication. Uh, but uh, we are grateful to have you here. Pastor Dean mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that uh, there's several views of the millennium. There's the uh, amillennialists, the pre and post millennialists, but he, he failed to mention the, uh, the ever-growing popular pan-millennialists to believe it's just going to all pan out in the end. Any pan-millers around here? Anybody? So that was my view of Revelation. I thought, man, this thing's just going to pan out. You know, Jesus wins. That's all I really need to know as long as Jesus is ahead on the scoreboard when the clock uh, hits zero. That's good enough for me. But coming to see through this series that Revelation is written to churches, uh, primarily to seven churches in Asia Minor, has encouraged me that there's something for the church, not just in the first century to glean from this letter, but also something for the 21st century church. So I'm excited to be able to share with you today uh, from Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can turn to that or the words are up here on the screen or in the app and the message notes. Here's what it says. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit, in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and, gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly." So we get a picture in Revelation 17 and 18 about the great Babylon. Babylon, this, this great kingdom and empire that at one point ruled the entire known world. And that's who John is writing about here. The first thing we want to see about Babylon, we're going to see a lot of things about Babylon today. But the first thing I want, to, want us to see about Babylon is that Babylon is a metaphor. Uh, when you think about who, who John is writing about, uh, you ask, is John writing? Is this about Babylon? Well, the answer is yes. But it's also no. Babylon existed 700 years before John was even born. So he's not writing about Babylon, but then he is writing about Babylon. He's writing about the, the Babylon of history, but also all of the Babylons that have existed in all of human history. This is what John is writing about. So for the Israelite people, Babylon would have been a big deal, would have been uh, the greatest enemy of God's people uh, probably in their history. Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city as well as the temple that Solomon 
built, which was really tied to their, to their history. So when, when John is writing about Babylon, people know, their ears perk up, these Jewish Christians who are living uh, in, in the, the time of Rome know what he's talking about. And speaking of Rome, when John is writing about Babylon, he's also talking about Rome. When we think about the book of Revelation, we have to remember that it's coded. It's apocalyptic literature. So everything is symbolic and everything represents something else. So when he's talking about Babylon, he's talking about the ancient Babylonian empire, sure, but he's also talking about Rome. The Roman empire was the current occupier of God's people in Israel. They had come in and uh, occupied uh, the fir- the Jerusalem in the first century, and in 70 AD destroyed the temple, again, a rebuilt temple uh, of God's people. And we believe John is writing about 20 to 25 years after that event in 70 AD. So John has a lot to say about how the Christian people should live in Babylon, under Rome, under the persecution of Rome, under the marginalization of Rome, and how they should live in those days. Again, it's written to churches, it's written to Christians. But Babylon is actually more than that. Babylon is not just the ancient empire. It's not just Rome. Babylon is a metaphor for really all evil, powerful uh, regimes that have ever existed in the history of humankind. I think if you were to ask the Jewish people, one of the examples of Babylon would be obviously Nazi Germany in our more recent history. So, so Babylon is a metaphor for all of the evil with the full command of executive government uh, that we see in the world. And I think this, this points to something about Revelation that, that's helpful for us to realize, is that every generation, usually there's a group of Christians that believe that they are living in the end times, the, like the last of the end times of human history, every generation. And with good reason, because you can come with every generation with current events and the book of Revelation and start to line things up. And so people who do this, they are, in one hand, 100% correct that their current events are lining up with the book of Revelation. And yet they are also 100% incorrect that that it's probably not going to be the way that we think it's always going to line up. to be. But this is why we're often inclined, why we can see it, because Babylon is bigger than just... Babylon. It's a metaphor. This is why uh, certain people uh, were able to write books in 1988 that Jesus, 88 reasons Jesus will come back in 1988. That was 30 years ago, right? And he wrote 89 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1989, right? Why did he do that? Because he looked at the book of Revelation, looked at the signs of the times and says, yeah, we're living in the last days. And yet here we are 30 years later. Guess what? We're still here. And so I think for us to kind of try to take this, uh, this book and try to figure out, all right, who is Babylon and, and which empire does it really represent? We, we, we instead should see it as a metaphor for all evil, uh, for all of the ages. This is what we've been talking about in this entire series. Revelation isn't trying to tell us what will happen next, but give us hope no matter what happens next. That's really what it's about. It's not trying to tell us what's going to happen next. It's trying to tell us what's going to happen, how we can have hope, and no matter what happens next. And so it's important for us to kind of keep our eye on the ball here, keep the main thing the main thing, and not get kind of bogged down in, in how does this apply. Because if you go looking for it for, with current events, you're going to find it. I guarantee you, you're going to find it. Um, and and to, to encourage you a little bit, 
when Jesus was asked, hey, Jesus, when is your, when is your second coming going to happen? Even Jesus said, that's not for me to know. Right? That's not for me to know. Only the Father knows that kind of information. So I, I feel like if Jesus is not in the know on that, man, it says a lot that we want to try to be, doesn't it? Uh, so Babylon is a metaphor. That's why we always can see these, these parallels with what's going on here. It's important for us to realize that every, every generation has challenges. And while our challenges that we face in our generation are unique, it's not unique that we're facing challenges. The church has always been dealing with Babylon in its culture since the beginning of time. And so we have kind of two choices. We can either be paralyzed in fear or we can believe with hope. That's kind of our two choices, I think. We can either kind of give way to fear that we're living in an age, in a, in a, in a culture, in a time that's full of challenges, full of Babylon, and we can be afraid. That's very tempting. Or we can have hope. This morning, I hope we will choose the latter. When we think about Babylon, especially from uh, Revelation 17 and 18, uh, we, one of the challenges that we face with Babylon is being able to recognize it in our day and time. And so I've looked at the text here. I want to give you some clues as to what we're looking for when it comes to Babylon. And then we're also going to think about kind of all the, the past regimes of human history that we can kind of build a profile of Babylon Around. So we read Revelation 17, 1 through 6, and here are some of kind of the, the images that come out here. We see words like adultery, immorality, abominations. So those are some characteristics of Babylon. We also see violence, murder, oppression described here in the text. And then last of all, we get kind of image, images of opulence and wealth and, and riches in the, 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 particularly the prostitute that's riding on the beast. So I've kind of drawn from Scott McKnight's work a little bit here and drawn from the text. And I want to give you kind of seven attributes of Babylon this morning. Here's the first one. Uh, Babylon is anti-God. All right. Anti-God, against God. Second of all, uh, Babylon is anti-God's people. Anytime you see uh, an evil regime embracing the dragon, you see someone who is opposing God and his people. But there's a third attribute here. And that's opulence. So there's always great wealth, great riches, and it's, it's over and above. It's, uh, it's over the top. You see that in the description of this woman who's covered in all of these jewels. But there's a fourth attribute, and that is there's arrogance when it comes to Babylon. There's this larger-than-life kind of uh, no-one-can-touch-us, no-one-can-defeat-us kind of arrogance. And then five is murderous. Six is militaristic, and last of all, you've got economically exploitative. So this is kind of, a, I think, a profile that we get. What is Babylon like? What does Babylon represent? These are kind of those seven attributes that you can see from the text in human history to say, yeah, this is kind of what Babylons are like. So now that we know what Babylon is like, what do we do, what do, we do with this? I'll give you kind of some practical applications for us. Well, I think, first of all, we need to be willing to confront Babylon in our world. We need to confront Babylon in our world. Wherever there is oppression, wherever there is um, economic exploitative things going on, wherever there is murderous activity, we need people of the Lamb in those spaces 
advocating for those, those people. We need to be willing to confront Babylon in our world. When Jesus gave his mandate to his disciples, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That surely means to share the good news. It's not any less than that, but surely it means more than that, that God wants us to be about spreading the name of the lamb to all nations, to the world. Remember the, the scene around the throne room of heaven in earlier revelation we looked at where every tribe, tongue, and nation is around the throne of Jesus? We get a picture that this is a worldwide thing this is, that God is doing. And so wherever there is Babylon, we need to be willing to confront it in the world. But secondly, another application, I think, is that we need to be willing to confront the Babylon in our country, to confront the Babylon in our country. Now, just to be fair, our country is not the only country that has Babylonian tendencies. Every country, every government that's ever existed has Babylon, uh, parts of Babylon in it. In fact, I would say maybe every leader has Babylonian tendencies. So our country is, is not unique in this way. I'm not singling out uh, the United States as, as a way to be critical uh, alone of our country. Every government, every country around the world has parts of Babylon in it. But we live in this country. <laughs> we live here. And since we live here, we have to be willing to, I think, confront Babylon in our country. I think this is what Revelation is encouraging us to do. But I think there's a, a way that we do that, a way that we approach this confrontation that's very important with our own country. Uh, I want to suggest to you that we approach confrontation about the Babylon in our country with two things kind of held in tension. I think we need honor and we need honesty. How do we do this well? Well, we do it with honor. We need to realize that our country has a lot of good things about it. And there's a lot of things that we enjoy because of the sacrifice of a lot of people who've come before us. And that, that deserves to be honored, I think, when we talk about the Babylon in our country. But also, we hold in tension this other truth that we need to, when it comes to the Babylon in our country, we need to be honest about it. We need to be honest that, hey, if you take that list and look at it, man, a lot of those kind of tick a lot of marks about what's going on in the current state of our country. So we need to be honest enough to say we've got some Babylon here, right? So some of us, we want to be in either one of those. We want to say, nope, I want honor without honesty. And some of us are like, no, I want to be honest without showing any honor. And I think we need to hold them in tension, okay? Honor and honesty. And when we think about these things, when we think about being anti-God and anti-God's people and opulence, arrogance, murderous, materialistic, you can start to get a a feeling for some of the Babylon that is here among us. Um, so how do we go about then understanding what our role is in confronting Babylon in our country? I think it's important to realize that we are a part of something bigger than our country. As people of the Lamb, bring you back to that throne room of God, we are part of something bigger than a country. We are part of actually a kingdom. Jesus said that there would be tribes, tongues, and nations around his throne, and God is making them into a kingdom. So you might ask this morning, is it right or left? The answer is no, no it's, it's kingdom. <laughs> it's kingdom. It's, it's bigger than any system, any government. We're part, part of a kingdom. So how do we confront the Babylon in our country? How do we confront the Babylon in our world? I think that's really the question. A lot of us, if we think about this, this great 
uh, empire and all that it, it represents. We can see that there's Babylon in these places. But where we might really differ is what do we do about it? <laughs> where we really might differ is, okay, what is the solution? All right, how do we go about confronting Babylon in our, in our own country? Well, I see Christians doing kind of four basic things. And I want to encourage us to, to recognize three of them, but only embrace one of them. All right, Christians doing four things. I want us to recognize three, but embrace one. Here's the first one. I see Christians responding to Babylon in our country by just withdrawing. You know, when I think about this group of people, I think about that Homer Simpson meme. You know what I mean? Where he's just backing up into the bushes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we're just, we're just like, this has gotten to be too much out here. This is overwhelming. I'm just going to kind of take a step back and not engage. And maybe if I can kind of stay in a, in a Christian bubble and kind of surround myself by, by all these, the, the good influences and stuff, then maybe I can keep Babylon out. But I, I think why this doesn't, doesn't work is because we need Christians wherever there's Babylon. Wherever there's the dragon, we need people of the Lamb. And it's hard. It's hard to engage. It's hard to stay connected. Uh, but I think we need to. So don't withdraw. I see Christians doing it, but I don't think we should. But then there's another group who've decided, no, 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 we're going to do the exact opposite of that. We're going to declare war on our culture. If our culture is going to uh, marginalize us, guess what? We'll marginalize them right back. If they're going to reject us, we'll reject them right back. If they're going to fight us, we'll fight fire with fire. We'll declare war on the Babylon in our country. My question is for, for us that are maybe wrestling with that this morning is, do you think it works to fight Babylon with Babylonian values? Like, is that how that works? Do we defeat Babylon via the tactics of Babylon? I, I don't think so. It's tempting to do. It's very tempting. There's always this pull in that direction for us to just fight fire with fire. We get tired of being put on the back burner. But I don't think it works to fight Babylon with Babylonian values. You can't bring the way of the lamb into the world via the methods of the dragon. Can't be done. But I see a lot of Christians doing it. There's a third way, though, that some people are dealing with confronting Babylon in our country. And that is they've just said, you know what? If you can't beat them, what? <laughs> Join them. You can't beat them, join them. You know, we've kind of struggled, we've kind of resisted, but now we're going to kind of, we're just going to go with the flow, right? See where this thing goes. Not everything's bad. Might as well just kind of see how, see how the winds blow of, of culture here. And we'll just kind of go, go with the flow a little bit. That's what I see, kind of those three responses. But I don't think that's what God's calling us to do. But God is, I think, calling us. And we can see it in the book of Re Revelation. It was written to churches about how to be faithful in the challenging times that they were finding themselves in under the oppression and marginalization of the Roman Empire. How to be faithful. And so what do you do? How do you confront when you're not the one who's primarily in power? Well, I think it takes people of the Lamb living like the Lamb in the world. I got to speak here last month and I told you that we need to embrace the ethic of the slain lamb. That's what we need to do. I think that's what Christians need to do. If we want to impact our culture and confront Babylon, we need to do it in the way of the lamb. Do it the way that Jesus did it. Now I'll tell you, in a couple of chapters, we're going to get there in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that Jesus is going to come back on a white horse and he's going to have a sword in his hand 
And you can read some of the imagery there to know well enough that he's going to do right by the world. He, he is going to bring about justice. The king of all the earth will do right. He will bring justice. We can trust that. But that is not today. Pastor Dean said it really well. He said, we are living right now between it is finished and it is done. We're living between the cross and the new creation. And while we live between those two things, he said, our guide is is Romans chapter 12 that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not vengeance, it's not revenge, it's not fight fire with fire that we're supposed to embrace. It's the way of the lamb that we need. We need the way that Jesus lived. We need to be like he was in the world. And to illustrate kind of what I think that looks like for us as we try to apply that to our own lives and context, I want to tell you a story. There's a a professor named Robert Smith Jr. And Robert Smith Jr., I've had the privilege of hearing him speak on a couple of occasions. Um, I've heard him uh, preach. He's a very gifted communicator, very gifted teacher of God's word, and I've always enjoyed hearing him. But recently I was in Atlanta back in August at a a conference with our network of churches and and heard one of our vice presidents tell this story. I'd never known this about him. But Robert Smith Jr.'s son was tragically murdered at the age of 34 by an 18-year-old young man. And he was telling about Robert Smith Jr. as he was In the courtroom, they found this young man. They put him on trial, and Robert Smith Jr. was in the courtroom grieving the death of his son by the hand of this young man. And he was kind of torn between two feelings. He was was feeling this, this deep anger towards this man who had taken his son's life, and yet this deep compassion for what would drive this young man to do something like that. Throughout the trial, he just said he just stayed in the tension of those two things. Eventually, the young man was convicted, sentenced to prison for a very long time. And uh, when Robert Smith Jr. was at his house one day, he felt the Holy Spirit, felt the Lord say to him, you need to go meet this young man. You need to go meet him. You need to go talk to him. And so that's what he did. He set it up, made an appointment, connected with this young man face-to-face, and they shared some of their life together. His son's murderer face-to-face with him. So he went home, went back to his life, and not too much later, the Lord told him, he felt like in his spirit, the Lord was leading him, you need to go back to this young man and you need to share the gospel with him. You need to go back to the prison, you need to go back where he's incarcerated, and you need to share the gospel with him. And so that's what he did. He went back to the prison, and he shared the gospel with this young man, and would you believe it, the young man responded to the gospel and accepted Christ. He accepted Christ. Robert Smith Jr. led led his son's murder to Jesus and went back home, and wasn't too much longer before he felt like the Lord was leading him. Robert You need to disciple this young man to follow me. You need to go back and over and over disciple this young man to to show him what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's what he did. He went back to the prison and visited him over and over and was discipling the very man that had killed his son. 
And through the course of discipleship, this young man began to feel a stirring of God in his life. And he sensed that God was calling him to some kind of ministry. He didn't, didn't know if he would ever be out of prison. It might be, he might be in prison the rest of his life. But that God was calling him to some kind of gospel ministry. And God told Robert Smith Jr., hey, you're a seminary professor. You train him to be a gospel minister. <laughs> and so that's what he did. And I just want to ask you, what, what kind of thing possesses a man? Not just to visit his son's murderer, but to share the gospel with him and disciple him and then train him for the ministry. I guarantee you it's not Babylon. <laughs> it's not the way of the dragon. Only the ethic of the slain lamb does that. Only the love of the lamb does that kind of thing. Only the kingdom of Jesus does that. And so as we think about confronting Babylon in our country, I think we need more Robert Smith Juniors, don't you? So we confront the Babylon in our world. We confront Babylon in our country. But there's a third place that we need to confront Babylon, and that's in ourselves. Babylon in ourselves. You know, I think it's really easy to think about Babylon and to think, oh yeah, man, that's out there, right? There's, there's the ways of the dragon. Those are, those are out there. Those are out there in the world. The world has Babylonian problems and the, the, our country does absolutely. But it's another thing to look inside, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's always easier to recognize Babylon out there than in here. And yeah, I think that's our challenge when we come to Revelation to look inside and go, hey, what is, what is going on in me? What's going on in the church? Because when I talk about us, I really mean, I mean the church. Whatever we're doing, we're a part of the church. That's what the church is doing. So how, how much Babylon is there in us? I've learned this, this principle. I've lived in Ohio now four and a half years. I've learned this principle about myself. Um, you can take me out of the South, but it's really hard to take the South out of me. Um, I... I uh, grew up and born in East Tennessee, grew up in Tennessee, spent eight years in South Louisiana, have family now in West Tennessee, in the Memphis, Tennessee area, and, and from the South all my life, 30-something years, never lived above the Mason-Dixon line. So I'm Southern. I say things like y'all. I think y'all is a perfectly good use of the plural of you, Okay. <laughs> Um, I drive a pickup truck. I think SEC football is the only kind of football to play, all right? Now, listen, you, maybe not this year, but, you know, it's just, it's just part of who I am. Like, as long as I live here, the South kind of lingers in me. I believe that tea should be sweet. You got a lot of convincing to do with me with unsweet tea. It's just, it's just not, it's not good. So you, you can take me out of the South, but it's really hard to take the South out of me. In fact, I, I didn't realize how much I'd been influenced by Midwestern culture until I found myself at a restaurant the other day and I asked the, the waitress, I said, hey, what kind of pop do you have? I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you can remove me geographically, but you can probably hear, there's some Southern accent in there. Do you hear it? You can hear it, especially when I say things like Sprite, night, light, light. It really, really hangs in there. But there's a similar, there's a similar truth. And that's that there's a lot of Babylon in the church 
and not enough of the church in Babylon. I think that's true. There's a lot of Babylon that's kind of seeped into the church and not enough of the church uh, in Babylon. And so confronting Babylon in ourselves means that we're willing to say, okay, where, where is there Babylon in me? You know, if, we, if you were just to pull up the, the seven attributes of Babylon again and, look, and start to look at these and ask yourself, okay, where, where am I anti-God maybe? Where am I resisting the work of God in my own life? Where am I anti-God's people? What, what, what conflict or rift do I have with the body of Christ? You might ask yourself uh, around opulence, where am I greedy? I mean, that, that, that's a question nobody's asking themselves. Where, where am I greedy? Because there's always somebody better off than us. But we might just be honest with ourselves and go, Lord, where, where are there places in my life that there is greed? Where, where am I arrogant, Lord? Where is pride taking root in my heart? God, where am I murderous? What group of people or persons do I have hate against or anger against? Where, where is my heart murderous? Is there something militaristic about the way that I'm living? Am I too uh, com committed or, or um, dependent upon violence? Or do I get my sense of peace from how well our military is doing? Is there something militaristic about my heart? Or, is, or am I economically exploitative? Like, do I, do I put financial concerns above every other concern, Lord? Where's there Babylon in me? It's not easy. It's hard to ask ourselves that question. But I think we need to ask that question. We need to be willing to ask, Lord, where's their Babylon even in me? And we need to realize, listen, the, the pull from Babylon for us is always going to be there. There's like this gravitational black hole that is Babylon that's just all the time pulling at us. We need to realize that. Listen to what John wrote in, John, in Revelation 17, 6 through 7. He says, I saw the woman, this is the woman who represents Babylon, drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, listen to what he says, I marveled greatly. I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? You can't, you can't blame John for marveling at what he has seen. This is quite the sight to behold. This woman is, is decked out and beautiful and absolutely stunning, and there is an appeal there, and that's the way Babylon always is. It's always appealing. There's always going to be this draw to be drawn in, and the, the angel kind of snaps him out of it and goes, stop, why are you marveling at her? Even John, even John, who's caught in this moment, just can't help but be drawn to it. And that's what Babylon does. It presents itself as something very desirable. Babylon in the way of the dragon is not about offering us undesirable things. And it's always been this way. The dragon has always been this way. Think about what the serpent did to Eve in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent approaches Eve, he does not approach her and tempt her with avocado toast and unsweet tea. It's, it's desirable things that, that he offers to her. Take the fruit, Eve. And, and the text says that Eve saw it and it was desirable. It was pleasing to the eyes. And that he, she saw that it would make her wise. And that's why she wanted it. And that's the way the dragon always is. That's the way Babylon always is. It's, it's flashy and nice and good. Come take this. Come be a part of this. It's always going to be appealing. That's why this is great days like today child dedication, where, where parents are saying, I'm going to teach my kids in the way of the Lamb, and I'm going to teach them the dangers of Babylon. That's why we need to disciple 
the next generation. Because why? Because Babylon, man, it's just the appeal is there. The draw is there. And listen, as things grow darker around us, and inevitably they will, there's kind of two ways to look at that. Again, there's fear or there's hope. And look, I would encourage you today, you don't have to fear your mission field. You don't have to fear your mission field. And, and things may get darker. They probably will get darker. But the darker the night, the brighter the light that illuminates it. Babylon's going to pull at us. It's going to be there. But encourage us to resist the appeal. Why are you marveling at her? The angel asked John. But we also need to realize something else about Babylon. It's appealing, but its destruction is sealed. <laughs> Babylon's future is sealed. Look at what it says here in Revelation 18, 17. Babylon is on a collision course with destruction. For in a single hour, it says, all of this wealth has been laid waste. John is speaking in, in metaphor here, a single hour. He's talking about that's the destruction of Babylon. In one hour, Babylon is gone. Took, took centuries to build, and in an hour, it's gone. It's not a literal hour. It's a metaphor. But it's, the, the hour is, is there to show us the fleeting nature of this, uh, this kingdom and its values, the fleeting nature of the dragon, that it won't last forever, that it won't be around Forever. In fact, I have a picture for you of uh, what Babylon looks like or what's left of it. It's Babylon today, the great empire. And this is where it is. And this is the future of every Babylon, past, present, future. This is the, the, the future of the dragon, gone in a, in a moment. Listen to Re Revelation 17, 14 says, it's totally different with the lamb. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will what? Conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's kind of two teams. There's team dragon and team lamb. One is going against the flow. One is embracing things like Robert Smith Jr., and the other is going with the flow. But listen, the future of those two kingdoms and those two teams couldn't be more different. One day Babylon will face its reckoning and will be swept away and everything that is attached to it will be swept away with it. Do you really want to align yourself with that? <laughs> I mean, it takes faith to believe that, right? Because right now things are good in Babylon, aren't they? Things are good with Babylon. Oh, but there's coming a future. It's temporary. In a single hour, it's all going to go away. It's destruction will be swift. So where do you find yourself today? Where do you find yourself today? What is God speaking to you about today? What encouragement has he given you today? Where is the, where is the text confronting us today? There's an appeal in Revelation 18. Four that says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. I think that's a great invitation for all of us today. Come, come on out of this. You don't have to be a part of this anymore. 
You don't have to be a part of the, the ways of the dragon. You don't have to let Babylon, there be more Babylon in you than there's you in Babylon. Come, come out of her. Maybe you're here today and you don't, you don't know the lamb. You don't know the slain lamb. You don't know what it is to know Jesus. You can hear this invitation of God saying, come out. Come out. Come out of Babylon and come to the lamb. Come to know the slain lamb of Jesus. Because he changes everything. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you so much that because of Jesus... The future of the Lamb and the future of Babylon, is, it's sealed. And it's a, good, it's a good warning for us today to say that Jesus is coming back on the horse with the sword and everything that, that is Babylon and that's tied to it is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped away. It's fleeting. It might seem like it's really deeply rooted here now, but there's coming a future when it's all going to go away. Lord, it's a good warning for our hearts to see that. It's a good warning. And God, thank you that you have delayed and tarried the return of Christ so that we might be drawn to the lamb. That there's mercy today because of the lamb. God, I pray that this morning too, that this wouldn't just be a closing prayer to a message, but God, could we just use this as a commissioning? I mean, think about it. Lord, all of these people in this room from all of these different backgrounds, all of these communities in our city, all of these families represented here who are involved in school districts and who are involved in companies and who, who go to offices and have impact. God, even globally around the world, the influence here, God, what could you do if you got more of this church into Babylon? And so God, if I could just commission these people who are here, who are, who are people of the slain lamb, God, would you take them into Babylon, into the world, and let them bring some of that Robert Smith Jr. kind of life. That ethic of the slain lamb, the love of the slain lamb into the world. And God, would you transform Babylon through us? And that's our prayer, God. And we pray it all in the name above every name that is worthy of every power and position that is higher than all thrones and dominions, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will bring all of the justice, the judge of all the earth who will do right. We pray all this in the name of the slain lamb of Jesus. Would you stand with us as we sing today?